Let's begin our time in the Old Testament this morning by looking at the New Testament, specifically 1 Peter chapter 1. You don't have to go over there. If you want to go over in your Bible and navigate over in your device, you can do that. I'm going to have the text up here on one of the screens that you see to the right or to the left. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Peter has just begun his letter with a powerful description of the amazing salvation the deliverance, the rescue that we enjoy by God's grace in Jesus. So that reality of of our salvation informs the first word of and the transitional call to action that we find here in verse 13. Take a look at it. Therefore, we know why the therefore is there, right? Therefore, preparing your minds for action And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written... You shall be holy, for I am holy. Wow, I love First Peter 1. If you've never read it all the way through that, go back and read it at a later time. So how has Peter decided to encourage this faith family to whom he writes? By calling them to live out the new life that's been given to them by the grace of God. He wants them to, as Paul would say, work out your salvation What God has put in you, work it out to his glory. He's calling them to do that very thing, live out this new life. And then he's grounding that call to live out a new life by going back to the Old Testament. Grounding that in verse a verse from the Old Testament. Yes, I'm talking about the quote that we see there in verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, when you need encouragement... From God's word. When you need encouragement and inspiration from the Old Testament specifically, I'm guessing that you turn to books like Psalms. Yeah. Psalms. Maybe Proverbs. Maybe one of the prophets. Some great passages. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Maybe the stories of David. Or maybe of Ruth or of Daniel. But, but in a letter full of Old Testament quotations, and there's many in First Peter, many allusions to the Old Testament as well, notice the very first place Peter turns in this letter is Leviticus. <laughs> is that weird or what? Leviticus. He's turning to Leviticus. I wouldn't have believed it either. But it's right there in verse 16. Leviticus. To be more specific, Peter is quoting there from Leviticus 11, 44 or 45. Maybe he's got both of those, 44 and 45 in mind. Now, some version of that phrase is found a few more times in the book of Leviticus. And one of those places it's found is in our main text this morning in chapter 19. Look back over there. If you're already there, take a look at verses 1 and 2. So consider how chapter 19 begins in the book of Leviticus. Real, 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 real quick. What is Leviticus? It's a book of con- containing the words of God given by 
given by God to Moses when Moses had brought the people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, and brought them into the desert where they had met with God and made a covenant with God, this is God giving them these laws about how to be his people, his covenant people. So that's the kind of point in time we are in the, in the story of redemption, the story of the Old Testament, the New Testament, the story of the Bible. That's where we are with Moses in the desert, God giving these laws to the people. Verse, verse 1, chapter 19. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh the God of Israel, L-O-R-D capital. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. What's interesting is that along with chapter 11, verses 44 and 45 that I just mentioned, this is one of the first places in scripture where God is described as holy. You would think there'd be a ton of places, right? That, that, that he would be described in that way. Uh, we're three books into the Bible by this point. There's not. In most instances, where some version of this word is used in the Hebrew, it's referring to other things in association with God. Much more common to find the items, the things associated with God as being described with this word holy. The seventh day, Genesis 2, the ground around the burning bush, the garments of the high priests. The Israelite altar or some portion or part of the sacrifice offered on it. But after the deliverance at the Red Sea, the Israelites lift up their voices in song, lift up their praises to their deliverer. And this is what they say in their song of worship. Take a look. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. There it is. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. That seems like the appropriate response, doesn't it, to everything we just heard about the plagues and God bringing Egypt to its knees in the opening chapters of Revelation, doesn't it? That, that declaration right there. So as I mentioned, in Exodus, almost every instance of this word holy, and it's there a lot, Almost every instance, apart from maybe that one right there that I just showed you from verse from chapter 15, every instance is connected to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, or the work that's being done there, or the workers who are doing the work there. But one exception to that is in a pivotal passage in Exodus, and I mean pivotal in terms of the grand narrative of the entire Bible. This is one of the this is one of those top ten, top. 15 verses in the Bible. In Exodus 19, verse 6, God announces his plan for who the Israelites will be. Take a look. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a what? A holy nation. You'll be a holy nation. Interestingly, Peter also takes this passage and applies it to his readers in the second chapter of his letter, right? So he's pulling these 
great verses out of the Old Testament, the first five books especially, bringing them to bear upon his readers, showing them that all of God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, to grow the man or woman of God. So in Leviticus 19, we discover an explanation or an exploration, we might say, of what it means to be a holy nation. He's already told them and made covenant with them that they will be a holy nation. Now he's explaining what that means, what that will look like. Now, I don't need to remind you that Leviticus is a strange book, right? Let's be honest. When you read through it, it is a very strange book. I think in my series in Leviticus from many years ago, when we went through the entire book, I said, how weird it would be if you were hiking in the desert somewhere, right? You're out in the middle of nowhere looking for desert critters, looking for petroglyphs, looking for whatever, enjoying a day out of the desert. And you come over a ridge and you see this, a bunch of people around a tent in the middle of the desert, slitting the throats of animals, right? Blood everywhere, all sorts of things going on. Yeah, you would be sufficiently creeped out, I think. You would think that was very odd what was happening here, right? Incense going up, something, some chant, some noise, whatever it might be. People keeping you away from this holy area. It's a very odd book, especially to modern readers like us. So we may be tempted to think, as we talk about things from Leviticus, how is any of this relevant to me, Pastor? You're talking all about the Old Testament and the Israelites. How is this relevant to me, to my choices, to my challenges, to my life today? Well, that's a great question. Please remember that the Apostle Peter an apostle of Jesus, an inspired writer of Scripture, directly applies this statement from Leviticus to you, a follower of Jesus. Does Peter think it's relevant? Absolutely he does. He does think it's relevant for you that you understand this call. He's used it. Now he's encouraging his readers with it. As we saw at the outset, he uses it as a call to action. Believer, is this your desire, though, this morning? Is it your desire to be holy? Do you hunger to be holy? Do we hunger to be more and more like God? If you do, then you hunger to be holy. You hunger for holiness. That's what that means. If that's the case for you, then we should hold on to Peter's words, those opening words, the words we began with this morning. Hold on to those. But it's equally important that we look back to where Peter himself is pointing us. So we have to ask, what can a passage like Leviticus 19 teach us about being holy? As God is holy. Right? What did Peter say? He said, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. As he is holy, you also be holy. So how do we do that? What does Leviticus 19 teach us about that? If Peter drew from this passage, we want to draw from it as well, right? In an appropriate way, in a way where we're rightly handling the scriptures. So what does it teach us? Let me break my answer to this into two parts. First, to understand for us what it means to be holy, let's touch on what the word itself actually means. And then number two, let's examine what holiness looks like in this passage, okay? Let's look what holiness looks like in this chapter. So a definition first and then a description. Definition, 
description. First definition. The word holy is one of those classic religious words, isn't it? (laughs) What other context do you hear the word holy being used in our culture? Uh, Aside from Robin on the old Batman TV show, right? Holy, irrelevant references, Pastor Bryce. Yeah, that's what Robin would do in the old Batman TV show. The word is only used pretty much in religious contexts, spiritual contexts. And I call it one of those classic religious words because it's a word that Christians use frequently, but if they were pressed to give a definition, many would struggle. Uh, 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 holy, give me a second. Uh, mm, uh, I, I think it means uh, something like... Uh, uh, that's what we would struggle with, and, and, and I get that because it's an interesting word. It's a hard word. I think it's helpful to point out right from the start that holy is not synonymous with righteous. It's not synonymous with morally pure. All right? So let's keep that in mind. Holy is not synonymous with righteous. Those words are often related They are often related to one another, but they are not synonyms. One reason that we know that is not the case is because all sorts of things can be holy. Right? Things that are impersonal, objects that are amoral. (laughs) So as I mentioned before, the ground, garments, even grain can be holy. So we know it's not synonymous with moral purity. But it's important to note that the concept of holiness, when we're trying to define it and think through it, it has to begin with God. It has to be grounded in God. It has to be anchored in God. There's no, there's no definition apart from God of the word holy. Just as our main verse makes clear, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. So what does it mean that God is holy? That's the question we need to ask. It means, take a look, it means he is radically distinct because of his deity. He is W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy other. That's what holiness is. It has to do with God's nature, that he is radically distinct because of his deity. The biblical concept of God's holiness is best expressed in Scripture by the simple and repeated, we find it in many places, the repeated question we just heard in Exodus 15, verse 11. Let's put that back up. Who is like you, O Yahweh? If you want to define holiness, just go back to that regularly. That's the spirit of it right there. Who is like you, O Lord? We know the answer to that, don't we? We know the answer to that. Who is like you? God is radically unique. There is no one and nothing like him. This is clear from the obvious and simple fact that he made everything else. (laughs) So when you try to compare God to everything else, there's that huge looming distinction that he was the one who made everything else. Uncreated, created. Uncreated, created. In light of that stunning truth, we know he is exalted above all things. He is holy. This is why it is morally wrong. Here's where we get to that moral part. This is why it is morally wrong to ignore that distinction about God. 
as those created in reference to the, the one who is uncreated, the creator, it is morally wrong to ignore this distinction, to ignore God's exalted position, to reject that special distinction about God and treat him as something common to bring him down to our level. The Bible routinely condemns us for doing this regularly. It is at the heart of sin. According to Paul in Romans chapter one, if you want to define sin, do not start with bad behavior. Start with a worship disorder. It's exactly what we see here, right? We're reminded of that when we talk about this idea of holy. We treat him as something common. And in so doing, from our human perspective, we rob him of his incomparable worth. But beyond that creator-creation distinction, God is also distinct or set apart from us by virtue of his virtue. Isn't he? This is where holiness and righteousness come into contact. The character of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God was decidedly distinct, decidedly distinct from the petty gods and the wicked worshipers and the abominable practices of the nations that surrounded Israel, God's people. Even though Israel would be tempted, always tempted to widen, keep widening the tent of their worship. We want to have a big tent when it comes to gods, right? No, 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 no. That's regularly condemned throughout the Old Testament. They wanted to widen the tent of their worship. We know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was to be treated as holy. He was to be set apart by his people in every way as radically distinct. And if they were actually hallowing God, that's what the word hallow means, to regard or treat as holy. If they were hallowing God in this way, it would be reflected in how they lived their lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you regard God as holy, right? if you set apart Christ in your heart as Lord, First Peter chapter three. Oh, we keep going back to first Peter. If you set him apart as Lord in your heart, your life will be different. How would it be reflected in their lives? Here's where we move from definition to description. Definition, description, ready? Holiness. How would it be reflected in their lives to regard God as holy? Well, it would be regarded. Sorry, it would be reflected by holiness in their lives. To regard him as holy, we become holy in our lives. Holy living. Think about this. If an experienced and winning little league coach, anyone ever coached soccer, little league? Raise your hand. Football? No, I had. I did one. Yeah, I did one season of soccer. So if an experienced and winning little league coach is being ignored by his players and his coaching, his coaching is taking a back seat to whatever each player believes is best, whatever they want to do, or maybe to interfering parents in the stands, then his distinction as the coach is being disrespected. But any player who recognizes his distinctiveness, who recognizes that the coach is coach, the coach is coach, he or she is going to stand out from the others, right? 
they are going to stand out from the others. If they are looking to and listening to the coach, those interactions and conformity to his instructions will set them apart. It's inevitable. That's holiness. That's holiness. Now, this chapter contains a lot that we could dig into in terms of living holy lives. For example, as we heard before from Elder Christian, after the first two verses of this chapter, take a look. The next two verses, chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, point out to us, those verses point out to us four, they point us to four out of ten of the ten commandments. Do you see that? That's pretty interesting. Four out of ten of the Ten Commandments are referred to right away in rapid fire after God calls them to be holy. We could also look at some of the ritual prescriptions here in this chapter. We're not going to go over everything. It's a big chapter. But we can look at some of the ritual prescriptions here, things related to sacrifice, things related to living out through symbolic patterns and practices, what it means to be a people of purity. Anybody have a 50-50 blend on their shirt, their top this morning? You would be in violation of Levitical law, according to this chapter. Can't have two fabrics in the same garment, right? Is that morally wrong? No. Inherently, no, it's not. But God chose it to be a rule for them because it taught them about being a pure people. It was a symbolic, a teaching tool to teach them what it would mean to be a pure people. We see that here. We could also examine in this chapter and talking about holiness, how being a set apart people is explicitly practiced when we when we reject the practices of those who follow false gods. So we're distinct from those who follow false gods in our culture, those who do not know God. But, and here's the, here's the kicker. Here's the key to everything. Everything I'd say up to this point has been just the preface to the message, right? I've been laying the groundwork for you, helping us get the trajectory that we need to get to this point right here. Because what's absolutely stunning about this chapter is the connection made clear by a verse like verse 18. Look down at it. Look with me at that verse and what it teaches us about reflecting God's holiness in a chapter about being holy. It says, you shall not take vengeance, says God. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something in that verse sounded extremely familiar. Did you catch it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Most of us know that command, don't we? We know that command. Why? Because Jesus himself described that command as the second greatest of all God's commands in the Old Testament. The second. That's 613 laws. This is number two in importance. According to our master. Number two. This is where he, he drew it from. So, so Peter wasn't the only one who went back to the book of Leviticus. When he was thinking about encouraging others to live a life glorifying to God. Guess who? Jesus did the very same thing. He went back to the book of Leviticus. 
to encourage his listeners. He did that very thing. And he did it in one of the most crucial, crucial passages in the New Testament. Right? Would you argue with me that Jesus talking about the great command and the second great command is not one of the most important passages in the New Testament? He's drawing from Leviticus here. But it's also important to see that this command in verse 18, right, is not a one-off. In this 37-verse long chapter, this is not a one-off. Look down at verse 34. We heard this earlier, didn't we? Verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. There's the same language. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. There's that same love language again, brothers and sisters. This time, it isn't simply being applied to one's Hebrew neighbor, right? Before, in verse 18, it was the sons of your people. It was your Hebrew neighbor. What an encouragement for us in the faith family be thinking about a verse like Galatians 6. Let us do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. That's verse 18. But look at verse 34. It also prescribes this love for the stranger. This is the foreigner. This is the immigrant. What does love look like here? It means treating that stranger in the same way you would treat the native Israelites. Treating him as you yourself, that's a word from the verse, as you yourself would want to be treated. Okay, pastors, that's two verses out of 37 verses that refer to love. Is that really an emphasis here? Though the word love only appears twice in this chapter, verses about what love looks like are everywhere. If you want to know what loving your neighbor and loving the stranger as you would your Israelite neighbor, loving the soldier, if you want to know what that looks like, all you need to do is dig into this passage. Verses 9 and 10. We heard a reference to those before about gleaning your fields. Verse 11. Verse 13. Verse 14. Verses 15 and 16. Verse 17, verse 20, verse 29, verse 32, verses 35 and 36. Right down the line. This is not a one-off. This is the emphasis of the chapter. Beyond verse 18, the word neighbor also appears in verses 13 and 16. And beyond the terms neighbor and stranger, Look at the variety of other people identified here in this chapter, in these verses. We have the poor and the sojourner in verse 10. We have the hired worker in verse 13. We have the deaf and the blind in verse 14. Both the poor and the great in verse 15. Your brother in verse 17. A woman who is a slave in verse 20. Your daughter in verse 29. And the gray head or the old man in verse 32. Think about the diversity. The diversity of the people mentioned here. And think about how many of these people I just mentioned are what we might call the vulnerable. 
in that society, those prone to mistreatment, to neglect, to discrimination, to being taken advantage of. That is why God speaks. That is why he describes this for them here. Is it any wonder, knowing that, that when Jesus wanted to depict neighborly love, he told the story of a man who was robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road? Perfectly in line with Leviticus 19. For any who desire to be holy, and I hope that's you, this diversity should challenge us. Everything that we're seeing here, it reminds us that sometimes the people who are easiest to look past or hardest for us to love are the very people to whom God is calling us. Amen. I think it also makes clear that God is concerned with, to borrow imagery from Jesus, he is concerned with everyone that we meet along the path. Not just some. Not just those you like or have connection or chemistry with. Everyone who comes down your path, God has called you to love. As our master taught us, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Matthew five forty six. The amount of verses in this chapter that describe what it means to love one's neighbor is also a challenging reminder for us that love means more than being nice or friendly. Leviticus 19 teaches us many things about love, including the fact that love is sacrificial, that it's equitable, that it's meek, that it's forgiving. Let me encourage you to go back on your own time and go back through and reread this chapter. You might have read it last week on the Bible reading plan, but go back and reread the chapter and ask that question, what is God showing me here about loving my neighbor? According to my Lord, the second greatest commandment. What is revealed here? How does it inform my discipleship to Jesus to live in light of this scripture, the inspired word of God. Brothers and sisters, friends, it's hard to escape the fact that holiness and love are emphatically intertwined in this passage. Holiness and love are emphatically intertwined in this passage. According to what we see here, to be holy, take a look, to be holy is to be loving. To be holy is to be loving. Just meditate on that for a moment. To be holy is to be loving. To be holy does mean other things according to God's word. It means other things as well. But what we find here, I believe, is absolutely critical. Now, for some, this emphasis may come as a surprise. Why is that? Well, there are many Christian traditions that emphasize a kind of social separation when it comes to holiness and being holy. That's the emphasis. For these traditions, holiness is regularly communicated in terms of what you stand against and how different you are from the world. But according to the words of the Holy One Himself in Leviticus 19. 
Holiness is more about standing for love. And how similar you are to God. That's what holiness is truly about. That's where it begins. You shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that holiness and love are emphatically intertwined here. That shouldn't surprise us. In the same song that we heard from Exodus chapter 15 from the newly emancipated Israelites, in that same song, we find a declaration, this declaration about the God of their fathers. Take a look. You have, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Why did God redeem his people? Because he loved his people. Why was he leading them and how was he love, leading them? In love. And God reminds them of this fact, that very historical truth in chapter 19. Look at the final statement of verse 36 at the very end of the chapter. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You need a reference checked, right? You need a course correction. You need to remember why I'm saying this to you, because I'm God. Yes, the God who led you out of Egypt. Remember your deliverance. Remember your salvation. Remember your rescue. Remember your redemption. If you lose sight of that, you lose sight of what fuels, part of what fuels our holiness. The very love in which they had been led was the very love they were called to reflect. So, What are we saying here? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God God calls his people to be holy as he is holy, right? So the question from me to you is, do you belong to God's people this morning? Do you truly belong to the people of God this morning? If you do, then please hear that first, this call to action as first a call to fix your eyes on God. Right. Start with the last part of the the statement first. You be holy for I am holy. Well, we want to fix our eyes on the last part. God is holy. God is holy. And then second, we hear a call to action, really, to use Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. We hear a call to action to do what? To pursue love. Pursue love. If I were to walk up to you, on the street, if I saw you in the grocery store, if I were to knock on your door uh, and we came as elders and sat down with you and said, hey, we have a, an encouragement for you. Pursue love. You think, well, what does that mean? Well, it's First Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love. Christians should pursue love. What will that look like for you? How will it convict you? How will it challenge you? How will it shape you? To where will it drive you in God's word? You might be fighting the good fight against a particular sin in your life, brother or sister, but are you pursuing love? You might be developing a better grasp on Christian theology, but are you pursuing Love. You might be faithful in this or that ministry. 
You might be listening to more Christian music and less secular music. You might be giving more money or standing against some injustice or some anti-Christian movement. But are you pursuing love? To be holy is to be loving. How could ground and grain and garments be described as holy? Only one reason. Because of their association with the God who alone is holy. Holiness by association. (laughs) Don't you love that? Holiness by association. Those things were set apart for him and sanctified by him. And if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, then that's true of you as well. Holiness by association and association through God's son. First Peter 3.18, Christ died that he might what? Bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. Like the Hebrews, he brought us out of slavery as well, didn't he? Amen? He emancipated you. He liberated you from slavery. But Hebrews 10.14, take a look on the screen. It also tells us this about his death, the death of Christ. For by a single offering he has, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice what's happening there. Savor what that means there. Amazingly, by grace, through faith, God has first perfected you. That is, he set you apart with the righteousness of Jesus himself. That's what you have in his eyes before him, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, you are called a saint. What does saint mean? Holy one. You are a holy one. But second, notice also Hebrews 10, 14 says that he is also setting you apart day by day. That is, he is renewing you day by day and conforming you to the image of his son. You are being sanctified, as the text says. So the God who is love, 1 John 4, 8, God is love has made it possible for you to become like him through the death and resurrection of his son. Hallelujah. Yeah. Therefore, one way of expressing, be holy for I am holy, one powerful way of re-expressing that idea is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen, love is everywhere. You don't have to persuade people about love in the world. In most places with most people, it is treasured. It is valuable. But there is no love like the love of Jesus. That's probably a good amen point right there. Right? There is no love like the love of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? You should. There is no love like the love of Jesus. What does that mean? It means his love is a distinct love. A set apart love. It's a holy love, isn't it? 
holy love. So the love we've been talking about this morning is most clearly seen in Jesus. Therefore, our desire should ultimately be not simply to be loving or more loving, but to love like Jesus. Would you make that your prayer this week? If you want to grow spiritually, don't first think of the theology book next to you. Don't first think of the Christian cause that you're hearing on the radio or TV. Don't first think of being more faithful to this or that ministry. Those are great things. First, think about praying to God and saying, God, help me to know you better, to fix my eyes on you, and help me to love like Jesus, the people that you put on my path, the people all around me. Is that your desire this morning, to grow in love as you grow in grace? Talk to God now, just a minute here about that very thing. And please don't forget that if you belong to Christ and you are here this morning and your failures to love, your failure to love well, maybe particular people in your life, your failure to love with that holy love, the love of Jesus, please remember in talking about Jesus that those failures are covered by his blood. Please know that. Don't be shackled by the shame, the regret of that. Acknowledge, as God's word calls us to do, acknowledge that you've neglected love in a particular way, confess those failures to him and receive his glorious forgiveness in your life and be renewed there to love. And as you do that, I believe you will hear again that call to action with the new ears of divine love. You shall be holy for I am holy. Amen. Amen. Let's go to God's word. Let's go to prayer and ask him to help us.